You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on January the 30th. Otherwise, I learned a few hours ago, known in the United States of America as National Croissant Day. Sorry, what's that? Today? Croissant. My name is Daniel Freeber and I am the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll be feasting not on crescent-shaped pastries, croissant or croissant, as I think Pogacar just said, but among other things on cross, for it is that time of year. The cyclocross worlds are upon us. Mercifully, mercifully coming to my aid is a gentleman who is as much an authority on cyclocross as I am an ignoramus. It is one of the voices of all cycling in Belgium, Mr. Renat Schotter, who told me just before we started recording that he hasn't been working on cyclocross um, this winter. So we're going to have to fire the booking agent. But you have been, <laughs> you have been watching cyclocross, fortunately, Renat. But how are you, first of all? Yeah, good, good, good. I mean, a winter without working at cyclocross is really um, a thing I would recommend every cycling journalist. <laughs> Kind of, but um, not the riders, of course, not the riders, because Mathieu van der Poel is also thinking about it, and that might be a problem. Based on well, what I read earlier today, I have been doing a bit of research for this um, episode. Um, he's toying with the idea of maybe deserting cyclocross. Who knows, Renard, in future, spending his winters, if you have spent your winter, you've just been telling us, um, in Las Vegas. I don't know whether you're on the slots in Las Vegas, but um, <laughs> you've been sort of doing this kind of sports fans tour of the United States watching NHL, NBA as well, I think. Yes, yeah, um, true, true. Various other yeah. things. Just tell us quickly about that. Uh, the Lakers really sucked. I'm sorry for the, <laughs> the language, but uh, LeBron was nowhere to be seen against the Utah Jazz game I saw between Christmas and, um, uh, yeah, what was it? Um, Three Kings, do we say that? Three Koningen in Dutch, uh, 6th of January. I mean, it was mm. January 3rd. And uh, so the Lakers weren't really, really playing well, but I saw very interesting NHL games, ice hockey with the LA Kings and the uh, Las Vegas Golden Knights. And that was really uh, a very, very interesting experience. And it, it once again struck me how different sports is being um, experienced in the United States compared to Europe. And I mean... The whole professional surroundings are so different from everything we're used to in Europe. I'm attending quite a lot of football games this season. <laughs> season ticket holder of Club Brugge, Club Bruges, mm. uh, because of my son and myself. And and if you think about the differences in, in approach, it's 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 day and night kind of. It's funny, Renard. I was out with Lionel Bernie last night, um, and we were talking about the same thing. Um, talking about our our respective experiences watching basketball games at Madison Square Garden. Um, Lionel, also a big fan of certainly watching American sport live. Um, we should introduce our second guest, um, Renard. Maybe we'll we'll talk a bit more about how sport is televised and how one sport, and well, how one discipline within a sport, i.e. cyclocross, is televised a bit later. But we should introduce our second guest, it's another commentator. I feel as though we should have a commentator's joust in this podcast. Um, he's another hotshot commentator who also knows his cocksider from his Koppenberg cross. But like Renard, he's also one of the voices whose oh, mellifluous tones accompany us throughout the road season. It is Blackburn and the Balearic Islands' own Rob Hatch. Rob, how are you doing? 
Navin. Buenas tardes. Yeah. <laughs> How are things for you, Rob? Uh, well, Blackburn are about to sell their best player, so I'm not very not very good on well, that front. So I'm afraid. So a club Bruges, so a club Bruges, okay. or they were they were about to to um, a club that I'm not particularly fond of. Um, but anyway, that's another. That is definitely another subject. Um, Rob, you are somewhere where some road cycling has been taking place over the last few days. We're going to talk quite a bit about that later, but um, that must have been mm, pleasant and novel to be able to catch the odd glimpse of the European road racing season getting underway out of your bedroom window? Yeah, the doorbell went about four minutes to on air on one of the races and I went to answer the door very quickly and I could hear the helicopter up filming the riders going up the, the push mile. So that was quite a novel experience. Yes, it was nice to feel like I was back in the bike racing on site again. Uh, I have attended the Challenge Mallorca in the past. It doesn't exactly, I wouldn't say it sort of, it mobilises the masses in, in Mallorca, no. would you? No, it mobilised the masses when I went to the pub on Friday and I was the butt of everybody's complaints about the roads being closed and blah, blah, blah. Why do they have to come through town all the time? And, you know, the usual sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's... Um, but I've changed my opinion of it, as we'll talk a little later. I, I used to see this as sort of like the Charity Shield pre-season friendlies, but I think it gave us a slightly different vibe this year. Well, chaps, um, on that note, since we are already talking about it, I'll start this week's news roundup. I'm going to start with the Challenge of Mallorca. We recorded last week. I think we were midway through this sort of week-long series of one-day races. I forgot how, or oh, I forget how many rounds of the men's races we'd covered last week. So I'll give you a comprehensive and final list of races and winners in chronological order. They were the Trofeo Calvia, won by, or Calvia, sorry, um, won by EF Education First Simon Carr, the Trofeo Cesalines Felanich, won by Paul Manier of Sudal Quickstep, the Trofeo Serra Tramontana, won by Leonard van Etvald of Lotto Destiny, and the Trofeo Poyenza, won by Pelayo Sanchez of Movistar. Actually, there was another one, Trofeo Palma, won by Herben Tyson. We'll get into the weeds of some of those races a bit later on, just as we may look a bit more closely at what happened at the GP La Marseillaise, which was won by Kevin Genietz of Luxembourg and Krupama FDG. And the Cadell Evans Great Open Road Race, which was won by another Krupama ride at the Kiwi, Lawrence Pithy. It had completely, chaps, passed me by that the Cadell Evans Race is a world tour race. Um, as it is for the women, um, the women's 2024 edition also took place well, last weekend. And that was won by Rosita Reinhout of Visma Lisa Bike. Um, Oscar Onley, um, who we covered last week, the winner on Old Wollonga Hill in the Tour de that He had um, well, an unfortunate day, didn't he, at the Cadell Evans Road Race. He crashed and broke his collarbone. Um, a lot to digest there, chaps. Um, I don't know about you, but this this time of the season, particularly with the, the demise of GCN, it's very difficult to to stay on top of all this racing. I, I keep I'm waking up in a cold sweat regularly, um, sort of with that feeling of not having done my homework, not having digested and fully processed all of these races going on. Before I get told off, you can watch it on Discovery Plus, by the way. That that was very skillfully set up by me. That was um choreographed well in advance. Um uh, there was a lot to digest there, chaps. Um, Rob, you and I also, we mentioned, uh, I mentioned Krupamart there, who have had a very good start to the season. Um, you and I were exchanging notes as well about the sort of broadsides that have been fired 
in the media by a former <laughs> Groupama rider, Arnaud Demar, in the direction of his old team manager, uh, Marc Madiot. Not, um, not enough reinforcement, not enough praise, not enough well done, mate. Um, seemed a strange thing or two to say, given that I'm sure surely somebody shook his hand or patted his back when he crossed the line. But obviously quite a bit of bad blood, no, when he, when he left there at the midpoint of last season. Yeah, a surprising amount, a surprising amount, given how long and successful their association was. Um, staying on the road, completing our results roundup, it would be remiss of me not to mention that we have a new set of Colombian national champions. Those titles were awarded at the end of last week. And over the weekend, they went to Diana Penuela in the women's TT, Dani Martinez in the men's TT, Paula Patino in the women's road race, and Alejandro Osorio in the men's road race. That ahead of Sergio Higuita and a pretty resurgent Egan Bernal. Did either of you two catch any of those? Just the results and um, yeah, the results are what they are and a win's a win, even if it's early season and even if it's a national championship that you don't get to see um, broad or yeah, I think uh, a win's a win and it should never be underestimated, as simple as that and at the end of the season all those wins will be counted. That's what we tend to forget in the early days of the season and uh, the, the teams use them for their statistics, I mean, so Never, never underestimate any win in a cycling race. Indeed, Renard, indeed. Uh, next, not news about races that have taken place, but races that will be ridden in a few months' time. Uh, the news being that Geraint Thomas intends to ride both the Giro d'Italia and the Tour de France in 2024. Um, chaps, a lot of people were surprised by this, and not least because I think Geraint Thomas himself sort of said at the end of last year that he'd come to the conclusion he found it very difficult to get ready and particularly get sort of to racing weight for two grand tours a season. And that, in fact, chimed with what I was hearing from insiders at Ineos, particularly at the Vuelta last year, that well, he didn't have a, a good Vuelta, it's well documented. He sort of um, left that race licking his wounds and sort of dismissing the Vuelta as the holiday grand tour um, and suggesting he wouldn't go back there. But he seems to have had some kind of change of heart. Um, in what role, in what guise he will go to the Tour de France in particular remains to be seen because we know that he's got a bit of a, a score to settle with the Giro d'Italia after last year and uh, missing out so narrowly to Primoz Roglic. The feeling I have about it is that they have a new chief, Ateneos Grenadiers, and he wants one of their main riders to be at the uh, flagship uh, competition of the year, which is the Tour de France still. So even if it's not his own choice, he'll be there. And I think that's an interesting thing and an interesting factor also in the run up towards the Olympics. So the Olympics will play a role in a lot of season schedules. Maybe the Tour de France this year is once again, like last year for, for Glasgow, a preparation race used to be the perfect uh, turned out to be the perfect preparation for Mathieu van der Poel. Um, okay, it's a blasphemy to take the Tour de France as a prep race, but uh, it has been done before with success. So who knows? And Garen Thomas being a Brit, being a Welshman, um, importance of the games is, is definitely to there uh, across the channel. So I think that might also play a role in his decision to do the Tour or part of the Tour de France. 
Rob, next headline. I think you were on a few weeks ago when we first gave news of Red Bull's impending yeah. purchase of a controlling stake in the Bora Hansgrohe team, subject to the regulatory process. We have received notice in the last few hours that said regulatory process has been completed. Um, a lot of speculation about that in the last few days. We don't really know what it's going to mean yet. A lot of a lot of talk about this. This. Of course, meaning that Red Bull, Bora Hansgrohe are going to join the ranks of the so-called super teams, um, UAE, Visma, Lisa Bike, Ineos Grenadiers, I suppose most people would include in that. I think a lot of the, the speculation has been, you know, quite exciting sort of transfer market speculation. Said, oh, that means now that Wild Fanart's definitely going to go to Bora Hansgrohe, all that sort of stuff. That we're not sure because there's all sorts of things that have to fall into place with that. Um, I think what we can be sure of is that Bora Hansgrohe or whatever they might be called, whether they stay called Bora Hansgrohe or Red Bull, whatever, going forward, they'll have better economic means, they'll be better supported, and I'm pretty sure that as long as it's managed properly, there will be a bigger force than they already are, which is already considerable. Renat, any intel on this that you can give us? Uh, Van Aert heading to Red Bull, Remco <laughs> heading to Rembull. I wish I could, Daniel. I, I think it's early days to, to talk about those things. And there's a lot of contracts to be ripped apart if you want to happen, make happen all those um, those rumors and those speculations about the new, so would it be called, uh, Super Red Bull team? I'm not sure about that. I think we have to take this season first before we go on to the next Mercato because the last Mercato was already quite interesting. Um, I mean, I think that's um, <laughs> an um, understatement. Uh, there's so much to happen, so much will happen this season and I think it's too too early days to speak about Red Bull super team but uh, having seen over the years what Red Bull has done in other sports and what they have done with sponsoring like, uh, of athletes like, um, like uh, Wout van Aert, I'm quite sure their ambition will be staggering high. They want to become number one in the world on whatever field or whatever bunch we're speaking about. It's going to be an interesting season for Van Art. Of course, we know he's doing the Giro d'Italia and um, a few weeks ago when these plans were sort of unveiled, the consensus seemed to be that Visma, Lisa Bike were going to send a pretty inexperienced team or young team to the Giro d'Italia, um, maybe put some heft behind Kian Utebrooks for the general classification, but that it would be a young team generally. Um, I've just seen actually in the last hour or so uh, some kind of short list. I don't know whether the team have released this, um, a short list for the Giro d'Italia. And it looks an absolutely stacked lineup um, that could, you know, sort of uh, leaving to one side Jonas Vingegaard, it could easily be a Tour de France team uh, minus Vingegaard. So um, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, well, we know that Van Aert, he said loud and proud that he's going to go for stage wins at the Giro d'Italia. All talk of a GC challenge has sort of faded um, for the moment, at least. Um, Talking of the Giro remaining in Italy, um, there's been excitement in the last few hours, I would say, greeting the unveiling of a new, longer, harder Gravlia Strade Bianche, both women and men's versions in Siena. Uh, that announcement took place in Siena today. The women's route gains just one kilometre, going from 136 kilometres to 137 kilometres, but there'll be more gravel than was previously the case. The men's race lengthens considerably from 187 kilometers to 215 kilometers and will now feature four more gravel sections. So 
15 instead of 11 now. Um, chaps, I guess the likes of Tadej Pogacar, who I think, if I'm not mistaken, is going to start his season in Siena or in Tuscany for Strade Bianca. I guess he will be one of the riders who will be quite enthusiastic about this news. You would think the race will become more selective. You would think so. It's already a difficult race, actually. I mean, we tend to think of it as a big spring classic with the dirt and the gravel and everything. But if you look at those who've done well in the history, they've all been riders who've been able to climb quite a lot as well. You know, this really does favour climbing types more than perhaps we think because we consider it, you know, a proper dirty spring classic sort of thing. Maybe Renat not as much because he's surrounded by the stuff up there. Um, but, you know, we, we tend to have it in our mind like that. I think one reasoning for this might be, of course, they want to make it hard and everything, but we've had all this talk in the last few years of, ah, oh, should be the sixth monument and people desperate well, to sort of classify. About, exactly. They're trying to give it a distance so that people are going to talk about it even more. And I guess it's pretty clever and the organisers from a PR point of view, because again, it just intensifies talk. And well, does it mean anything? I'm not sure. Obviously, it means something to the riders who are going to try and target one it. Thing, one thing, Rob, you're also going to have this year, and this only occurred to me, I saw an interview with Simon Yates overnight. Um, he's at the Alula Tour in Saudi Arabia. Um, he's been talking about well, concentrating on the Tour de France. Of course, we've got the stage there, the Trois stage, uh, the Chemin de Vignes, de Vigne, um, the sort of, what, what do they call them? What's the translation? Vineyard tracks. It's basically gravel sections in, I think that's stage nine of the Tour de France, if I'm not mistaken, either seven or nine. And Simon Yates said that he's going to do Strade Bianche mainly to test his team's equipment um, in view or, or, or ahead of the um, Tour de France stage. Um, so that, that will probably be the case for quite a few guys, I would suggest. He's going to have longer testing now <laughs> because of more gravel and more Strade Bianche. So uh, I don't think it'll change the race really, but I think the chance of incidents is bigger because the more sections you have, the more incidents can happen. So in that way, it's even more interesting, but to come from a longer distance to call it a monument is way too early because for a monument, in my opinion, you need a longer tradition and you need even a longer distance, it has to be around 250 before we can talk about the monuments. And there's also been calls in the past about making Gantwevelgem a monument, and, and it's nice, And but let's stick with the five monuments. It's good like that. We don't need a six monument. I I, saw, I agree with Renat, by the way. I, I was, I'm putting that out there because I know that is what the talk is about, but I think monument distance is around but 250K, and, and it's the history that really, for me, makes it a monument. But it's just a made-up denomination anyway. Yeah, there is I mean, that. <laughs> this, is, this is something, Renat, I don't, I don't know if you can cast your mind back to the start of your journalistic career. I can't remember whether 20 years ago people talked um, about monuments. Well, they certainly didn't talk about them as much as they did now. Um, uh, we've discussed this before on the podcast. And I, when I was researching my book on Eddie Merckx, I remember old French language cycling books in the 70s talking about Le Classique Monument. But it wasn't necessarily the same five monuments that we think of um, in that kind of upper tier. And I have the impression that it's a term, it's a newfangled appellation that has come to prominence in the last 15 years. Um, or really embedded itself in people's psyche in the last, in people's consciousness in the last 15 years. No, I not? agree. 
I mean, but uh, a lot of those uh, nominations even turn up in the last 15 months. It's it's the era we live in. Um, things have are being created, and sometimes they make sense, and sometimes they don't. So it's just maybe it's it's just a nice side thing. The whole monument discussion. Back in the days, they were just called classics, and there's a lot of them. And then you have the biggest classics, and we call those monuments to make it. A bit easier. Maybe it's it's short through the corner. That's an, a Flemish expression. But uh, I I'm not staying awake for any monument. I mean, if the, the appellation. Eh? I mean, it doesn't matter if if it's called monument or super classic or whatever. It's it's the race that counts and the history. And then super then classic. we're getting I somewhere. Like that. I might go with that from now on. The super classics. Uh, last item on the auto queue is an 11th hour contract extension a few weeks ago we expressed our surprise disappointment three African riders seem to be heading out of the world tour Skabu Gamay uh, Mahawi Kudus and Amanuel Gebreg Zabir whose contract hadn't been renewed by Little Trek um, Rob I might have shared this with you over the last few weeks a chap in a, a fellow in a pub actually told me shortly thereafter that Gebreg Zabir was going to get another deal with Little Trek, but it hadn't been made official yet. Well, it took a considerable amount of time, um, but Little Trek, sure enough, today did announce that the Eritrean is staying with them um, for another year. Deservedly so, I would suggest, Rob. And we did have a, we had another discussion a few weeks ago about, um, well, diff the difficulties that some African riders have had over the last few years with visas and so on. Um, and also just this general theme that we've discussed a few times over the winter about how you hold on to a contract and how you present your case, how you make your case to a team when competition for places in the World Tour is so intense. And um, Gebre Xavier was a name that we, or was a writer we discussed, and the consensus among people who know him is that he's a guy whose ability on the bike sort of exceeds his, well, certain, the, the, the kind of level of extroversion, if that's even a word, or as a, he's, he's someone who keeps himself to himself. And there is a sort of sense among people who know him that that hasn't really helped him at time, or it might not have helped him, you know, last year and at the end of last year when he did have to make the case um, to, to stay at Little Trek and stay in the World Tour. Yeah, and that's why you need a good representative to do the job. You need a good agent to do the shouting from the rooftops for you if you can't do it yourself. And I completely I can identify and sympathise and actually like the fact that someone's not shouting about from the rooftops about their own ability. It's quite nice and refreshing, I would say. But obviously, if it costs you a contract, that's not good. So I'm delighted he has got a deal because, again, like you, everything I've ever heard from other riders has been pretty positive about uh, Gabriel Xavier and that he's a very, very very solid rider that's done a pretty good job when he's been riding in the World Tour, so that's good. And you mentioned Merawi Kudus as well. He's joined the third division Tranganu team, which on the Asia Tour is probably one of the most prestigious teams that's been around for the last 20 years or so. So, Remind us where they're from? Rob? They're from Malaysia. They're competing all the biggest UCI Asia Tour uh, races. So it's a third division team, continental team, uh, but at least riding for a team like that, I know that he wanted obviously this down the world tour, but he's going to be riding things like the Tour of Langkawi will be over in Japan and Korea and those sorts of races as well. So, you know, that's uh, an, an opportunity, hopefully for him to stay in the sport, get some wins and then maybe, you know, that opens eyes and other teams become interested again. A win's a win, as Renard said. The Cycling Podcast. 
for the latest news, views and interviews from the world of professional cycling. And so finally, we come to the the long-awaited or the most hotly anticipated moment of the cycling podcast season. It is the the short, the fleeting moment, um, the fleeting 20 minutes in which I have to talk about cyclocross. Chaps, believe it or not, I actually enjoy this episode and it's become almost a tradition. I think we've had a Renat, we had Renat on last year to talk about the cyclocross worlds and perhaps even the year before as well. And um, this is a rare occasion when I don't even have to pretend to be stupid because, or, or not to be stupid rather. Um, I, I can, I can embrace the role of class clown dunce and I can, well, I can let my curiosity about cyclocross as is well known, as I've said on many occasions, cyclocross is not my favorite cycling discipline, um, but I can, I can let my curiosity sort of, um, run wild, as it were, and I can ask you the most basic questions and just go away feeling as though I've been enlightened. And it's because you don't know it, Daniel. I mean, cyclocross is one of the most uh, underestimated, underestimated, is that correct English? <laughs> uh, under, it's, it's one of the most unknown cycling disciplines across the world somehow. It should be Olympic. I mean, I, I make a statement. It should be on the Winter Olympics. <laughs> Yes, I'm glad you said that because I, I Winter Olympics is the perfect place for it. And every time I seem to mention it, it gets buffed away. Why can't it be in the Winter Olympics? <laughs> it's winter cycling. Um, let's go one step at a time, chaps, shall we? And let's start. <laughs> let's start with the World Championships. Um, well, Renard, first of all, um, if you would, I would like you to give us a bit of a summary of the season and maybe picking out what have been the sort of main couple mm, of mm. themes. I, I mean, I think I know what the main themes have been. Certainly on the men's side, I know what the main theme has been and the dominance of a certain rider. Yeah. Um, but set the scene, if you will, for us ahead of these world championships in um, Tabor in the Czech Republic. Yeah. Rob, this is going to be contentious. Czech, 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 Czech. Yeah. yeah, set the scene, a preview. That, that, that is what I can do, Daniel, with, with pleasure and with love for cyclocross. So for next Sunday, what we're gonna see, uh, going to see under normal circumstances, is, is title number five for Mathieu van der Poel. It's written in the stars. I mean, if you look at um, the way he's performed this winter, um, there's this staggering statistic of 12 victories in 13 races, with Benidorm the exception. Um, he was actually beaten by a stubborn pole there. And Wout van Aert took his chance. And with the pole, I mean, it was an obstacle. Pole, yeah, yeah not, 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 not someone not from a person Poland. from Poland or a rider yeah. from Poland. So that pole actually uh, took his chances away in, in Benidorm. And that was his only uh, slip of the tongue during a, yeah, an amazing cyclocross season. So the big thing is, the big absentee is Wout van Aert, which means Mathieu van der Poel can basically only lose from himself, um, a crash, a mechanical, other unforeseen circumstances. Who knows that Paul from Benidorm shows up. I mean, that, those are the only things that really can can beat uh, Mathieu van der Poel, it seems like. Uh, Tom Pitcock is also a very uh, yeah, a big forfeit. So then everybody is thinking about second and third place for Sunday's big elite race. And then you have we have some competition, interesting competition from between low countries riders. You can basically say or predict that there will be six big candidates for silver and bronze, and then 
I'm thinking about three Dutch guys, Lars van der Haar, Pim Ronhaar and Joris Nieuwenhuis. Those are the guys from from uh, Holland. And then you have three Belgians with World Cup winner Eli Iserbiet. There's European champion Michael van Turenhout. We have Thibaut Nijs, who's the, the big Belgian hope long term. So those six, I don't think they will even try to follow Mathieu because if they do so, they, they might drop besides the podium. So that's a big risk. So... There's maybe 1% chance the Belgian cyclocross uh, national coach said that Van der Poel is not winning the race. So never ever in the recent history of cyclocross, the favorite has been so outspoken. So I don't know if that's interesting enough to watch <laughs> the race, but it's 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 something, yeah. Paul Herregus, for instance, the, the, the 94 world champion from Coxede, he said, I give Mathieu five stars and the other three stars which says it all, I think. So So never ever in, in recent history of cyclocross, the favorite has been that outspoken. It all started in, in Tabor, actually, for Mathieu I was, was going to say, yeah, he talks about this as a, well, as the highlight of maybe his cycling life, um, maybe outstripping, overshadowing even some of the highlights he's had on the road, doesn't he? Um, it, is it exactly the same course, Renat? Um, Tabor 2015 and now, no, there will be slight changes, but it still has the the classic characteristics from, from the Czech race. Um, it's situated about 80 kilometers um, south of Prague. Um, in Tabor 2015, Van der Poel won before Wout van Aert. Both were making their debut at the time at world's elite level. So it's a bit of a shame the, the, the sequel is not there this year, but uh, hey, it is what it is. But um, anyway, Mathieu is able to pull off his fifth world title, elite world title next Sunday. And then we come back to the beginning of, of this episode. In, he hinted this winter several times that he might experience in the near future a Spanish winter without cyclocross. And that would mean if he starts that, sequence next winter that we have to wait for him beating the Eric de Vlaming record of seven world titles that would stand till Mathieu maybe one day decides to come back to cyclocross. Maybe it's early days to speak about that, but I'm quite sure somehow that next winter it it looks almost a certainty that he won't do any cyclocross because he wants to break mentally also because the seasons are getting longer and longer. And also he sees the benefit of doing less cyclocross for his road career. Um, the record, he's not interested in records, Mathieu, but of course every Belgian is, Eric de Vlaming, seven world titles. That's history, that's legacy. And Mathieu himself, uh, himself has stated that he's a road racer. And he said that a couple of times. And, and in that sense, cyclocross really has a problem because it's not a main activity for for the two best riders of the moment, Wout van Aert and Mathieu van der Poel. So the, on top of that, the World Cup gets a lot of criticism and, and there's too many races. Um, it's not globalized enough, stuff like that. So what's going to happen with the calendar next season is, is also a very big question. And for the first time ever, they will not uh, announce the next calendar at these worlds. Usually they do that. They will not do that. They will withheld the, the calendar. And then later on, that will be clarifying what will happen with the World Cup and stuff like that. So it's a, a kind of a little crisis moment for cyclocross if you look at the broader perspective. Anyway, the race this Sunday or the races from Friday on, they will be worth following for sure. 
the, the, the race um, the conditions, I've informed myself, they will be uh, dry circumstances, which means we will have a hard surface condition. Mathieu should fly, but not only him, of course, eh? and on that kind of surface. And there's the classic barriers uphill. That's really a classic point where only three riders really have a technical advantage to begin with Mathieu van der Poel. But then you also have um, Thibaut Nees, who will jump those barriers, and uh, Michael van Tourneau. Those three riders will get an advantage to all the other competitors each round jumping those barriers. That's very, very important, possibly for the medals. So last weekend, we saw something uh, worrying for the Belgian public, not for the international public, but I'm speaking about Belgian perspective. No Belgian podium at Hogerheide, at the last World Cup. And the possibility that not was, there an emergency, was there an emergency session in Parliament? <laughs> almost, <laughs> almost, almost. You shouldn't forget it's Day been, of morning. It's been yeah. since 97 um, that no Belgium podiumed in the men's elite race. So What's yeah. gone wrong, Renard? <laughs> uh, Wout van Aert started to, to be good on the road. And mm. <laughs> I think that's the main thing. Um, so the men's race looks a bit... Yeah, a certainty with, with uh, lots of Dutch on the podium. That's a possibility. I hope that one Belgian jumps on that podium anyway mm. to keep that, that burden statistic away. But for the women, it's, it's, uh, it's even, yeah, 100% Dutch podium is to be predicted there with Van Van Empel being the major favorite. That's basically how I can sum up the, the build-up to uh, it, this weekend's it, races. It, it seems to me that the, so the Femme Van Empel-Puck-Peterson rivalry is kind of, it's, you could say well, from afar, from my very distant perspective, a bit of an analogue of the Van Aert, Van der Poel rivalry, but much closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, well, we, we can't compare that. I mean, both of them haven't done on the road what what Wout and Mathieu have done mm. on the road yet, so it's it's still a different ball game. But then again, they they make for great races. And Van Empel was really the Mathieu van der Poel this year of of the the women's circuit, mm. so she's the big favorite. But we shouldn't count out Brandt as well. She's always dangerous in championship races. But in uh, in theory, you would think. Peterson also has the advantage of jumping the barriers there on the uphill section. And that has to be proven. That has been proven decisive in, in past races, World Cups and Worlds on, on that uh, track. So um, anyway, um, Tabor is always a spectacular race and I'm really looking forward to them. Can I ask a question that just exposes my lack of research? Um, I've researched other topics in this week's podcast um, and I feel as though I've asked one of you this question before Tabor Czechia why well why Tabor um why has that because I know that it's a place with s some degree of cyclocross heritage it's been a venue for um well decades of various races and what is the link because um not to demystify cyclocross too much but I've seen cyclocross courses you can pretty much build a cyclocross course anywhere so why there that's a very difficult question, Daniel, but I'm quite sure it has to do with um, some very, very motivated organizer back in the days. I mean, Tabor is a race that goes back to the era of Paul Hedegas, um in, in the 90s. And so it's always been around and there's been a tradition and then they keep uh, organizing. And then, uh, yeah, for the riders, it's it's like it's the check classic of in, in the cyclocross world. And I think once the, the 
that reputation is established. They they try and probably also the Czech National uh, Cycling Federation they try to uphold that that tradition and it's it all started with one guy and it's still continuing and it's a nice place. It's not a big city. Yeah, it was the stage of one of the most legendary cyclocross moments ever with the move of um, um, Mario de Klerk, who who, who actually uh, hampered the, the Czech opposition. Glask was was the, the victim and Verwecken could win one of the Belgian world titles. So so I'm not sure that was one of the reasons they keep holding that race there, but it's it's been the ground of, of really big races and, and nice, nice, nice scenarios in the past. And I'm, I'm quite sure... Everybody is expecting Mathieu van der Poel to win, but it will not be without a battle somehow. Mm. Worlds stay worlds. There have been some interesting quotes from van der Poel in the run-up to this um, Worlds Chaps. Um, Renard, you've already touched on it, but this idea that he's got, or this idea that's sort of germinating in his mind about maybe not doing cross next year, maybe not doing it again in the future at all. Um, There was one quote, um, I saw this week. I don't think it really adds value towards the spring. Um, it's not the ideal training for spring. You're better off with five or six hours of endurance training than riding for an hour a breakneck speed. Now, even I, as a cross agnostic, have always maybe laboured under the misapprehension over the past few years that one of the cornerstones of Van der Poel's advantage is that unique work that he's doing and those workouts that he's doing on a cross bike in the winter and I've always imagined that he would give up some of some of the advantage that he takes into the classics if he weren't if he didn't do any cross and if he was doing you know solely the kind of ride that he's talking about there endurance training well he wouldn't only be doing that of course but if his his sort of um diet consisted mainly of that over the winter so that that struck me as curious we have this saying in dutch um, he's looking for a stick to slap the dog with. And, uh, <laughs> and I think uh, it has been an advantage for Mathieu van der Poel. Who came oh, up with that? The organizers of E3, Harold Becker? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, go on. Yeah. I think... Um, cyclocross has been an advantage of for both of their careers. I'm, and I'm referring to Mathieu van der Poel and Wout van Aert, of course. But I think the mental aspect has not to be underestimated because he's also stated in an interview recently that, that every race he comes to, there's a lot of uh, things happening around him and we can't underestimate the effect that has on a rider's mind. And then he has to hold that, that, that uh, tension with not only all the winter, but also during summer and and autumn and maybe some mountain bike in between. I mean, Do you know what, Renard? I've got I've got some advice for him if he wants to keep a slightly lower profile. Try not turning up in a Lamborghini. That might help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that the one Lamborghini was his. I mean, those are just publicity stunts. You yeah, know, yeah, Elizabeth turned up with a Porsche last weekend oh, or well. something, and and I don't think it was even noticed. But I mm. I saw it pass. It's like. Yeah, that's that's just. I might even mm-hmm. turn up in a Lamborghini at the next uh, Ronde van Vlaanderen. Who knows? The, we'll, the, we'll the real, <laughs> the real house husbands of East Flanders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, okay. But it's it's all about. Um, yeah, um, I think it's it's his mindset that is withholding him to to make uh, long term prospects on doing cyclocross, and probably after his last staggering road season. 
he now realizes what he can do on the road and he thinks, oh, wait a minute, I might capitalize on that. So mm. It's amazing when you look back or when you listen to some of the things he says now about road cycling and um, even in the last week or so, he's talked about his sort of mindset around 2015 when he won that first world and it not really entering his head at that point that he was going to be a fully fledged road rider that he was pretty convinced at that point that cyclocross was going to be Mm -hmm. his life. It's all about fun. uh, If you speak about um, the approach Mathieu van der Poel wants and he started to getting um, good times during long training blocks. And he never, ever imagined, certainly not in 2015, that he'd be able to pull off those blocks with having fun, whilst having fun. Mm. And he does that these days. And he's enjoying the loneliness in the Spanish uh, surroundings, the better Mm. weather, all all of it together. And also, what does he have to prove anymore in cyclocross? Nothing. I mean, if I were in Mathieu van der Poel, I might probably do the same and now go 100% for the road. And then at the end of his career, when he sees that it's more difficult to to, to get those same successes on the road, he's, he's performed last year, get back to the cyclocross and try to beat the Eric de Vlaming record. That would be a mm-hmm. nice approach. Him beating, um, taking his eighth world title at the age of 40, that would be the dreaming end of his career. So having established that Matty van der Poel is definitely going to win on Sunday, um, with one eye chaps on the road, and those riders who combine both activities and do it to great effect. Um, Renard, Rob, what are we to make of particularly Tom Pidcock and Wout Van Aert's cross seasons, if anything? Um, I would say that they've both got different plans and they're sticking to them. We've heard it quite a few times from Wout Van Aert and his coach, haven't we? Um, I was in Amsterdam and the, at the team presentation just before Christmas and he seemed pretty at peace with the decision like he'd accepted you know even if he went through the season without beating Mathieu van der Poel then you know it was what it was and you know he had one of those years last year let's not forget when when van der Poel was injured and out of it where it was all Wout van Aert wasn't it and he went through the whole winter and he was utterly dominant and he was brilliant but it didn't quite work out in the spring you could say that well there's a bit of bad luck here or there and there's probably some truth in that, but this year he wants to make sure he's at the age where he wants to make sure the team are winning grand tours here and there. Obviously they won every single grand tour last year, didn't they? Um, and he wants them to carry on winning the classics. Let's not forget the building up to, we're going to back to that M word, the monuments and the, <laughs> the Flemish Holy Week, if you like, they'd won just about every race, haven't they? Jumbo Visma. It didn't happen for them when it came to the Ronde of Flandre and then it didn't happen a week later in, across the border in, uh, in Roubaix. So they're trying to make sure that it will happen this year. Plus, as we mentioned earlier on, there's the different calendar. There's the different mental approach for, for Wat van Aert because he's going to the Giro. He's probably going to do, well, he's going to do the Olympics. Then he's probably going to do the Vuelta. So they've thought about this. They're happy about it. Um, I think he'll be happy that he got the win in Benidorm. Um, with Pidcock, he got, you know, a big win in uh, Nama, Namur earlier in the year, which was a cross, I think, that he's probably always wanted to win in the mud and a pretty legendary venue. Uh, And of course, he is going to go in a different direction. You know, it's the Ardennes for him, then the Tour de France. It's not particularly that big cobbled week. So with that, again, we'll have to see what happened with with the preparation. And as Renat touched on earlier on in the podcast, 
there's a change of management there as well. You know, what has that influenced on his objective? So I think we're going to have to wait for it all to come out in the wash. But, you know, they have their plans and they're sticking to them. And they both picked up wins, didn't they? So you expect, but what do you expect? I mean, that's what those two guys are thinking, hoping, um, Renard. If you had to gaze into your crystal ball now um, and prognosticate Wout Van Aert's 2024 season. I mean, last year, you know, this is a guy who's a victim of his own success and he's a victim of this, well, the rivalry with Van der Poel. Also this idea, this narrative that people have that he is this sort of cycling superman who should be winning everything. And, um, you know, we, we have the memory of the Tour de France a couple of years ago where he seemed to sort of drag the race at his will and at his want um, almost every day. But he, last year, because he didn't win a big monument, there was this idea that it had been a bit of an anticlimax and that somehow, I mean, he needed to improve as, as sort of paradoxical and as ridiculous as it sounds. Um, so what do you think um, to 2024 has in store for him? But clearly, it's all about those two races, the Ronde and, and Paris-Roubaix. But um, the thing is, if yeah, to win a race like that, it's yeah, it's so difficult. I mean, um, I've often said it; it's like a puzzle, and and usually one of thousand, maybe even ten thousand pieces, try to to fit them. So last year he was unlucky. Uh, on on the last important cobble section, Carrefour de l'Arbre, we'll never know how would it have turned out with uh, without that uh, flat tire. So um, I think he's been victim of a lot of criticism about not having won the Tour of Flanders or Paris Ruby uh, yet. But yeah, it's clear that, that um, the team also wants to win those two and that they're thinking about, okay, we'll have to win those, one of those two. And then um, the burden of Jumbo Visma not winning in, in uh, the two cobbles monuments is gone. But uh, it's, I think it's a big risk they take. But why should we blame him for taking that risk? I mean, he's only going to do a couple of races between the Belgian opening weekend and um, and uh, the Tour of Flanders. So no Gent Wevelgem and stuff like that. So no presence to be given anyhow, anyway. So um, I think he's just going to go for it. Those two races, he tries to be at 105%. Everything else is preparation, even if he wins with uh, yeah, with a lot of strength, uh, omloop at Nieuwsblad, it won't matter for his career. It won't count. Kuhne, Brussel, Kuhne, it's all foreplay. It's all about the Ronde van Vlaanderen and Paris-Roubaix. And if it doesn't succeed, well, then I know out, kind of. And then he will just continue and go to the Tour of Italy and just try to win a stage and check because he hasn't, ever performed at the Tour of Italy and he just tried to win a stage and, and check that off. And then he'll he'll start thinking about the summer, about the Olympics, where he will try to get rid of the that silver, that burden of silver. So he will try to win the time trial, even if Remco is there, even if Tarling or Ghana is there. And then he'll think about the road race. So if that not doesn't work out, he'll think about Zurich, the Worlds, and that's how it continues. And then another winter will come and he'll try again at the Ronde and Roubaix. I mean, it's just not a quitter. And he's not 30 yet. He still has a lot of good years ahead of him. His career is already a success. But of course, he wants more cherries on the cake. There have been a lot of cherries on the cake. But any rider wants to have those monuments. And for the moment, Milan San Remo 
and an almost monument, Strade Bianche, it's not enough is the the uh, yeah the thought of the outer world. But if I were Wout van Aert, I wouldn't think about the outer world. He has to think about his own happiness and whatever he's striving at, if he tries, you can't blame him. So pressure, those are things we are creating, the media is creating, the public is creating. He has to do what he wants to do. And I would agree with him saying, ich muss just nix. It's his life. And that concludes the annual cyclocross discussion on the cycling podcast. the sounds, the smells, the sights. It's, it's incredible. Good evening, everyone. My name is <coughs> Abel Karim Kamara, aka Stylish, the CEO and founder of the Toddy Loan. So. Much like Oh, I want to be like him. I want to ride like him. I want to sit on my bike like him. They're like the only charity organization shipping used bikes to see anybody. I said I'm feeling sick. So they assist me with some money and take me to the hospital, give me a bicycle to ride. The vast majority of junior riders were racing in kit donated by the Hater Brothers. Bikes means a lot to me. Like it's my parents now, I love it's my wife, it's my everything. Well, I know UCI has been, some of them have been following the Saudi Lonsa, and our goal is to reach the UCI level to see that cycling became top in Sierra Leone and West Africa. To see that happening and UCI is having like a continental African West African race is the biggest thing. Hello, Lionel here with a brief message about the Tour de Lunsar, the biggest grassroots race in West Africa. Now, you may remember that we featured the race in an episode of Service Course last year when Oscar Scarsbrook was on the ground in Sierra Leone. He was covering the event and our episode was brilliantly put together by producer Tom Wally. The event itself was created by Karim Kamara and over the past decade it's grown and it now encompasses races for men, women and junior riders, attracting teams from all over the region and providing an opportunity for cyclists to compete at a high level. Well, now the Tour de Lunsar needs a little bit of help. It finds itself short of funding. The 2024 edition is due to be held in April, but after the loss of sponsorship, the event is in a little bit of doubt. Kareem is determined it will go ahead as planned, but they do need some funds to put on the race. They need to pay for all of the infrastructure, the timing equipment, and just cover the costs of putting on the event. Stephen Moon, the former CEO of Science in Sport, has been a big supporter and backer of the Tour de Lunsar for many years, first in a personal capacity and later when Science in Sport were the title sponsors of the race. He's now helping Kareem to raise money to ensure the 2024 race can go ahead as planned. Tour de Lunsar has been a um, highly successful race, the biggest grassroots race in West Africa and for the last three years, um, science in sports and others have um, committed to make the event happen. And given the current travails in cycling and broader sports in the UK, a lot of companies have drawn back on their funding for 2024. And with Tour de Lanzar announced and the dates in the diary, they find themselves in a bit of a funding crisis. Getting this news makes us very sad and uh, we are looking around the networks of cycling and looking for sponsors to see that we continue with our event, to see that cycling continue to develop in this part of the world. 
the guys are very resourceful. They, they, they can run the whole four day race with all the categories, juniors, women, and men for around about 15,000. We have two and a half months because it is slated for the 17th to the 21st of April this year. The cyclists are training massively to make sure they are fit for April. We are having new young kids register for the junior race, new young girls register for the junior race. As I'm speaking to you tomorrow, I'm going to start sending the international invitation and letters to the local clubs that are on the grounds, letters to communities, letters to police to make sure they get the awareness. So we are going on with the plans whilst we are looking for funding. We're hoping to raise the money. Um, if we can get some people, um, some cycling fans uh, to help with the crowdfund, which we've done before, we successfully funded it. Um, an event in uh, in Freetown once before, just through people um, yeah, who were fans of racing from the UK. And then if I can persuade maybe two or three companies to put forward a smaller donation, I think we can get there. But um, it's important we give it a good crack. It's, it's, it's such a central event now in the sports calendar in Sierra Leone. We've just got to find a way to make it happen. My passion for cycling, I see, I see it as a tool or thing of creating awareness, bringing people together, preaching peace, taking young boys and girls out of drugs, putting them into proper mindsets. West Africa doesn't have lots of cycling events. And when you're looking at people and riders, they want to um, race near in nearby countries. And the only opportunity to do that is to do something like the Tour de Lonsa that brings people from one point to another. So, you know, it creates the opportunity not only for Sierra Unions, but for riders across West Africa. So Stephen and Kareem have set up a GoFundMe page to raise £15,000, which will cover all of the costs of putting on the Tour de Lunsar for 2024. If you search Tour de Lunsar on GoFundMe, you'll find the crowdfunder easily enough, but we will put a link in the show notes. Now, back to the show and Daniel and co. Okay, gentlemen, um, we are back on terra firma. Um, we're back in my comfort zone. We're back on the road. Um, we can see the, the, the sun breaking through the clouds, the olive groves of the Mediterranean. And um, yeah, I I've, I'm, find my sort of thoughts drifting, particularly to Mallorca. We talked about it earlier in the podcast we had racing in Mallorca last week that's where Rob currently is but chaps um for this segment um, where we will be concentrating on the road I, I set you a bit of homework um this is going to be the way for well most of the next couple of months we're going to be inundated with races um all over Europe from all over Europe um some races in the Arabian Gulf as well various other places we've got the Vuelta a Colombia um coming as well too much to wrap our arms around completely so we're gonna have to sort of pick out um talking points themes highlights things that have particularly uh, struck us about what we've seen so far so i asked you to do precisely that rob you were commentating last week on the challenge mallorca a few interesting themes interesting days of racing what has struck you so far um in the racing that you have seen in 2024 
how cycling's changed um, and how Renat touched on this early on. He said a win's a win. Every race matters. Now, even just two or three years ago, and I'm biased because these races come past my house and I love being able to step out and watch them. The realist in me, and of course, I think when the, the light goes red and it says on air, I would be honest. And these felt like the charity shield, the pre-season friendlies, if you like, races that, yes, you had a win. And if it was, you know, one of your first wins in your career, it was good, maybe good for the team to get a number in the box. And, you know, next to the W column, there was at least one in it. An early season win, get the confidence going. But did it matter when we were talking about, you know, the, the cobbles in the end of spring when we get to the Giro? Were we really going to be thinking about the Trofeo Cicilinas Filanich? Um, I'm not sure. You'll However, I have, to, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, though, the way in which these teams this last week attacked the race, the speed at which it was ridden, the importance placed on getting someone in a skin suit, the radio down the front, getting in a breakaway all day, controlling from the race behind, as we saw from EF Education, Easy Post and Simon Carr. These teams were really racing hard for points, for wins, for prestige. It is true that every race, I think, seems to matter now. And I know that this ties in with what you were talking about last week, Daniel, about, you know, the, the youth quake, if you like, the, the young riders coming along because we saw a lot of young very very good winners yeah more on that in a second yeah yeah and and you know i think if you're if you're you know good enough you're old enough now um it's funny i, I was looking on social media last week and for my sins which i don't do as often nowadays uh, but garine thomas was joking about being at an altitude camp in early january and you know you see a lot like him now up at 2000 meters and this was on the 24th of january this was racing on the same day over in Mallorca where they were really fighting it out. And I just thought even in the last two, three, four years, things have changed at an incredible pace and the importance now is on every race. And that was the thing that really struck me last week, Daniel. Rob, every race has become very important and um, it's not often that we give the UCI any credit, but the relegation system, which um, I don't have the... the date to hand i can't remember exactly what another year another that, two that seasons was. including this one so we're a pro yeah, at the end when, of this year people will be getting worried so it was introduced four years ago was it yeah um has that has that been the deciding factor in this phenomenon this trend and is it also a coincidence that you know i talked earlier on in the episode about super teams the super teams haven't been quite as prominent and there have been some of the sort of high-ranking teams, the Bahrains, for example, the Ineoses, that haven't been as prominent as some of the teams maybe in the sort of second tier, the lower half of the UCI rankings for whom those ranking points are vital even at this point of the season. Is there a correlation, do you think? Well, we saw a little bit of a glimpse of this last year, maybe with Lotto Destiny choosing not to go to the Giro d'Italia and choosing to focus their very best teams on races where they knew, you know, particularly with Arnaud Delis, they had a fantastic chance of doing well, winning and picking up points. This week, Anto Marcher, just like they were last year in Mallorca, were going things. And I've seen a, an, an interview actually in the, the Belgian press today about um, 
their their team boss saying we've got the lowest budget in in the world to you know we need to go and do what we can. We saw that with a fantastic sprint win for their 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 sprinter Kerman Tyson who who picked up a fantastic start to the season and he's got a new train. They've all worked together. Some experience brought on the likes of Van Hooker joining the team as well. Um, EF Education Easy Post. We saw them attacking more last year. I think that was part of a a bigger strategy and they've got a really good squad. So I think we will see them competing against the very best and the super teams as you talked about when it comes to the bigger races. Movistar placed quite a bit of importance on it, didn't they? And they got uh, their first win of the season with Palayo Sanchez. But it's not as if the big team sort of just brushed it aside, however. You know, we saw Brandon McNulty going for things for UAE Emirates. We saw Bora Hansgrohe trying to take victories with Vlasov. What it might do, Daniel, in these sort of smaller races, but you know, it, it, it keeps riders happy. It gives them a chance to go and win a race or at least race mm. for their own opportunities. But, it, you know, you could see after a few... The first, all right, the first day, the first reaction, McNulty and Vlasov lost out and there was a bit of, well, you know, first day of the season, we had, we had fun. They were on the podium three times, if you count Vlasov, out of the five and not winning. He was pretty fed up by the end of the week that he hadn't won. Yeah, so it was I mean, important to them. They're too riders in particular who are really fighting for kind of elbow room in their respective teams and they are going to have to take their opportunities um when they come in the season won't they it was that that genuine disappointment from riders like that that really hammered home to me how important these races suddenly become and then when you look at you know you mentioned the points and the relegation issue some of the teams going for that are pretty hovering close to the relegation trap door, if you want to use the football parlance, uh, mm. after year one, you know, is in a bit of an eye-opener. You know? We mentioned Lotto Destiny. I keep wanting to come Lotto Sudan, sorry. <laughs> you, you thought I'd have had it hammered home to me by now uh, after a year of it. But they themselves, you know, that, that worked for them last year because they're back up into sort of the promotion spots, if you like. So people focusing on it and waking up. Israel Premier Tech at the Giro last year going for things. They're moving up as well. So it has woken a lot of people. I and mean, I think that is, as you suggested there, one of the big reasons. And yeah, for once we should say, well played UCI. Yeah, indeed. I mean, people have always talked about UCI points and UCI rankings, but it's only really in the last few years that it has become relevant to the extent that we as people who are following the sport and covering the sport um, feel as though we need to be paying attention to that. Um, it was something that was, wasn't, was didn't feel very re relevant or existential for most people in the sport. Mm. One thing I will say on that front, and must do better, UCI perhaps, um, is that the point system isn't clear. If we want people new to the sport to get into it and follow a narrative, it has to be much more easy to follow. And I'm not yeah. suggesting we dumb things down because I know a lot of that happens in sport. Certainly, we, us in television are guilty of that, are trying to make things too simple all the time and, you know, 2020 cricket and you can carry it on to all sorts of different things. But if it were easier to understand, new viewers would very much get onto the narrative and be able to follow what happens over a season instead of, you know, let's say 125 points here, but then there's you know 250 what? there. <laughs> doesn't Rob, make much sense. In conjunction with the UCI, I feel that broadcasters should highlight this more, or could highlight this more now as well. We're very used to seeing the general classification at the end of races and the minor classifications, graphics flash up, um, a rankings table at the end of every counting race would be pretty useful and to know how much that particular race has counted towards the rankings. Certainly. It's funny. I'm actually going to the UCI next week. So that's something that I intend to bring up, Daniel. 
with Monsieur Lapartian. I'll Merci. join you, Rob. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's raise our hands at the same time at the back of the classroom and pipe up, shall we? Yeah. You'll be listening. You'll be listening to the cricket at the back of the classroom. That's what I used to do in class, Rob. I used to with the with the old um, headphone up the sleeve in hand. <laughs> Hand on your ear, listening to England in the West Indies. Um, Is that about. before you tip extra scores on your pencil? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, Renat, what has stood out for you um, in the first couple of weeks of serious racing on the road? I'm um, assigned to cover the uh, Portuguese Tour of the Algarve. And, and, and if you look at the lineup there, it's, it's really yeah, it's a staggering lineup. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to go to that race. Um, Garen Thomas is riding there, but uh, is announced there with Petcock, with Ghana. There's Evan Apul with his um, super domestic, if I may say so, Landa for the first time. Uh, we will see Van Aert there with, with Kus, the Vuelta winner. Uh, I mean, Gagan Hart is there. Um, unofficially, I've, I've heard that, that also Mathieu van der Poel might be there and lots of other riders. So that is really a race to look forward to. And then from there, I'll, I'll take it to the Belgian opening weekend. I know that's not the beginning of the season, but in Belgium, the public still believes that's kind of the, the moment that things really start. So I'm looking forward to that. And, and yeah, there's so many stories in, in the upcoming season. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, really excited about, uh, yeah the next 10 months well rob you talked there about well the, the 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 sort of very kind of visceral way in which some of these teams seem to be targeting early season races and the intensity of the racing and you alluded to the fact that well last week we had a discussion about youth and this is really um, impossible to ignore impossible to overlook now you use the term that i um, used last week youthquake youthquake was a term i believe it was coined by vogue magazine in the 1960s for a sort of cultural movement there's also a very good book um, that came out recently by an author called edward pace about um, the demographic explosion in africa um, and he gives it this well, he, he uses this term youthquake for the sort of um emerging well the, the power that africa um is going to wield culturally economically because of the population growth essentially um, but in professional cycling i mean i've been using it to sort of refer to this explosion of talent um, under 23 talent um under age 23 not the under 23 category and just the fact that we're seeing younger and younger riders prevail triumph we talked about Isaac del Toro uh, the tour down under we'll talk again about him in just a moment but it's continued over the last few days chaps um just to t today in Saudi or Alula tour Casper van Uden um, 22 years old um Paul Manier the lotto sorry um Sudar Quickstep French rider, 19 years old. I think I saw a statistic somewhere that he was the youngest French rider to win a professional race since Jacques Anquetil. Um, Leonard Van Etvel, 22 years old in Mallorca. So even Pelayo Sanchez, 23. Uh, um, Igor Arrieta as well was very prominent in Mallorca. Lucas Nurka. Um, son of a former, well, a very illustrious former British marathon long distance runner who now is also a member of an Isley Brothers tribute band. Did you know that, Rob? That's something. For no, no, country. that's going in my notes. Thank you. I, I know. Um, yeah, I grew up with Motown music. So the Isley, as soon as I saw that, um, I knew that I had to mention it in the podcast. Um, 
um, I am preparing, I have been preparing something about famous fathers or fathers with interesting stories. And um, there was another one I came across this week in L'Equipe. Mathis Rondel is a French rider riding for Tudor this year. Um, his father is like the Michael Jordan of long distance roller skating. Did you know this? He holds dozens of world... I was waiting for a basketball world... reference. <laughs> he, he, he holds dozens and dozens of world records in, you know, things like roller skating across Russia, that kind of thing. Um, so this this phenomenon, the youth quake, um, it has been one of the themes already of this season. And, you know, chaps, you can't help but think about some of the reasons there might be for this. The, you know, there are dozens of possible explanations, probably all of them, um, carry some weight and have contributed from the the kind of change transition professional cycling's undergone vis-a-vis -vis doping in the last 20 years. I think the technology and the availability of data is absolutely key in, in this. Um, even, you know, I was thinking, Rob, there's a lot of people maligning, rightly so, the demise of GCN and, um, in well, the, the fact that live coverage hasn't seemed as accessible in the last couple of weeks because we haven't got the GCN app. We're talking about guys who are 21, 20, 19 now, who over the last four or five years have been watching every single race from all over the planet. And even that, in terms of sort of a galvanizing effect, an inspirational effect on some of these riders, um, you know, as well as the way they've been able to mine Strava and as well as the way they've been able to on social media, for example, contact teams, getting um, get in touch with coaches and, and so on and so forth. Um, it sort of all adds up um, to just facilitating those, well, that, that pathway that used to be pretty difficult for a lot of guys. It was blocked as well by older attitudes, wasn't it? By the, the bosses of the peloton, the patrons, the capi, whatever you want to call them, who, of course, you know, decided when you were racing. There's television cameras on now, and you can't do that anymore when the television camera's rolling from start to finish as well. Um, just for the numbers, I've got my notes here from the second of the races. There were 157 riders starting. Nine of them were teenagers. In 157 riders, um, not bad and not something you would have seen at all in professional cycling, even three or four years ago. Um, I think you'd have been probably laughed out the room a decade ago for saying there were going to be nine teenagers in a professional race at this point. You mentioned that um, a few of them were up there. Um, the Narukas of this world and riders who just turned pro maybe a bit older than that. Uh, also, you mentioned the, the famous names, Arrieta, Beloki. There was a Beloki riding as well, a teenage Beloki for EF Education Easy Post. It was extremely interesting. And, and again, I'll, I'll remind all listeners that you can still watch all the same races if you're in Europe as you were before on Discovery+. Plus. Uh, the United States, there's been an announcement for that. And I hear that for Australia, there might be some announcement in the coming weeks, hopefully. Um, but yeah, people have grown up with the races. Daniel, everything's accessible now. You can find it if you want to find it. And coaches can look at their data. They can see mm. how good they are going on Strava. We know it's not everything. We know that you've got to learn racecraft, bike handling, all that sort of things. But if you have the engine, <laughs> we're going to find out, aren't we? And I, I don't know what Renat thinks about this as well, but I, I certainly think that... Some of it is to do with cycling catching up with other professional sports. You know, we've seen it in football for a long time, a focus on youth um, and cycling. For some reason, we have been stuck in this different 
age different view that cycling was different and you needed to have miles on the clock sports science has probably played a big part in people understanding that again if you're good enough you're old enough yeah also i think the yeah just the way that um, the new generations have embraced the internet i mean every information is available and so they they can um, educate themselves and 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 be streetwise at a very young age and i think that's something we didn't have with uh, generations uh, back in the 90s and stuff like that so it's all about data except for Mathieu van der Poel of course he's not on Strava anymore so <laughs> i think uh, the data are are very important and they are um, yeah making making it uh, a different ball game but um there's a lot of stories that that tingle me for if we speak about uh, 24 if you allow me daniel to to elaborate a couple of, of stories i'm really interested in looking forward to it there's more in belgium than it will astonish you maybe rob than than Wout and remco and and jasper philipsen and arno Deli. yes there is more and then i'm thinking about alex segart alex segart who's the vice national champion of Belgium. He, he became second in the road race after Remco Evenepoel, but he's a really good time trialist. He's at um, pro team Lotto Destiny. Okay, I know it's not World Tour, but they have a nice program and I'm quite sure that he'll um, be one, he might be one of the revelations in, in one day races next, next uh, this, this season. And then how... Um, I'm also thinking from a UK perspective somehow because the the, the, the figure of Joshua Tarling is really um, very, very, very uh, interesting to follow. His third place at only 19 years old. There we are again. That's another teenager. Last year, he's turning 20 in um, the day after Valentine this year. So, uh, yeah, those those are all stories I'm, I'm really fascinated by. How are they going to develop their careers at their, their various teams? It seems that... that l- Lidl Trek, we supposedly to say Lidl instead of Little, but whatever. They they um, they seem to be the winner of the the transfer mercato, and um, that's an American point of view. Then eh? it's still a USA connected team, and and if you look at the way they 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 come out of that transfer market with with. Uh, Kagan Hart with, with uh, Jonathan Milan, uh, Milan or actually um, coming from Bahrain Victorious that has a new performance. Coach, and that's the brother of Alex Segart. There's another Belgian touch there. Loic Segart left Lotto Destiny and he went to Bahrain Victorious. And he, he, so one day they will be reunited. I'm quite sure that will be a successful couple. They already were, but don't don't forget that name. There's Alec, the rider, and Loic, the performance coach. And then, yeah, there's, there's also um, exotic riders I'm interested about. There's, there's probably a rider you never heard of before, the Mongolian champion. He's 27 years old, so he doesn't fit into the teenager category, but remember the name Yambal Yams Sainbayar. He's the Mongolian champion and he's at European pro-continental level at Burgos BH. And I got to know him in China, really. And then he was in the early breakaway in, at the Worlds in Belgium in 2021. He's at his first real pro season. And I'm quite sure for Asian cycling, okay, the champion of Mongolian, Mongolia will be seen in the European peloton. That is a big thing. That's a huge thing. It might seem small for us from the traditional countries, but having a rider like that, he was third last year at the Asian Games behind Kazakh riders like uh, Fedorov and Lutsenko. It says something. Okay, so th- those are all different stories. The African uh, connection you, you spoke about, I'm also really fascinated about the development of Gurmai. What will he do at the Olympics? Will he continue history, stuff like that? I mean, it is such a great season to look forward to. There's too many stories, simply. 
Well, I, I don't know where to land, Daniel. <laughs> talking about exotic riders, young riders, and harnessing technology. And uh, last week we talked a lot about Isaac Del Toro, who had won a stage at 20 years of old, Mexican rider, um, won at the Tour Down Under. And well, earlier this week I harnessed some technology because um, after last week's podcast, I was I was contacted by. Um, the the sort of power um, the, the 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 brain trust really of the team that we mentioned last week AR Monex AR Monex and which is the Mexican under 23 team well it started as a mountain bike team became an under 23 team it's since developed into a women's team as well and uh, almost a sort of federation in its own right we talked last week about how the mexican federation has been suspended um i was contacted by their brain trust they were thrilled that we had mentioned them talked about isaac del toro and I was granted an audience by, um, well, all of the sort of influential figures at ARAR Monex um, just yesterday. So you're going to hear some voices now. Luis Rodriguez, who's the general manager, Andy Medina, who is from one of the sponsors of AR Monex. Um, it's a company called Eva, and they make lettuce. Um, lechugas and you're also going to hear they from, make uh, lettuce well they make you know what does one do they farm lettuce and you're going to hear as well Ramon Nakash who's from one of their other sponsors um, Intellicorp who I believe they um, they manage or they have um, co-working spaces and um, well those individuals are very excited about Isaac Del Toro and they're very excited about what AR Monex are doing and about cycling in Mexico. You're going to hear now a bit more about how AR Monex came to be, Isaac Del Toro, how he was discovered and this explosion of interest in Mexico. La llegada espectacular de una gran promesa del ciclismo latinoamericano. No le alcanza. Si le alcanza, le alcanzó. Ganó del toro. Ganó México. Qué victoria brillante. Qué espectáculo el que acaba de dar Isaac del Toro. Victoria para el equipo del UAE. Victoria para del Toro. Enorme actuación del ciclista mexicano. So uh, uh, my brother and I, Alex and I, we have another brother. We are three brothers. Uh, so, but, but we started it with only with Alex, and uh, and uh, we said, okay, uh, we love cycling, but Mexico it's totally erased uh, from cycling. So, so we said, what what is the problem? So the problem uh, has been for so many years the Mexican Cycling Federation. Uh, that was the the main uh, cancer of of our country. Uh, but we said we cannot uh, be waiting for the federation and we cannot be waiting for the government to do something. So we decided to to take action. So we moved uh, to Europe, uh, uh, Alex and I, and we went to, to France and then we went to England and then we went to Spain and then uh, Andorra and we ended up in uh, Czech Republic. So we were like learning from uh, French cycling, English cycling. We were living in, in Brighton in, in England. And uh, we were like like competing in all this area, London area, this area, uh, and also we went to Spain, and then uh, we were in Andorra because we didn't have uh, the proper visa to be in Europe. And then in in, in Andorra, we we uh, finished all our money, <laughs> so uh, so we had to start working in a Mexican restaurant. You know what? The, there's a really good Mexican restaurant in Andorra La Vella. I go there every time. 
I go there whenever we go to Andor La Vea. I always eat, eat Mexican because there's a really good place. Maybe maybe eat La Delita, no? Or, or... Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is uh, Juan Juan Valladares. He's the owner, and he he hired us. He's a really good friend, and uh, he he helped us a lot with money because. But then uh, we were working for him, and we only worked a few months uh, in Andorra, and then uh, we ended up in in, in Czech Republic. So we said uh, we have to discover why the, uh, people in Europe they are so successful with cycling, and uh, we discovered the the main uh, thing, and it's it's because they work uh, as a team, you know. And uh, so so we said that we have to do the same. So so of course uh, we 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 learned how to use uh, all the technology, and uh, we we learned how to of course uh, uh, start working with them uh, with a whole team, uh, psychologists, nutritionists. Uh, coaches, uh, uh, physiotherapists, uh, all all the professional team, and uh, yeah, and uh, in 2015 uh, we decided to to launch the mountain bike team, and we we saw that that uh, there was no uh, support from the government from the federation, so this is why we uh, identified, and then we decided to solve it through the uh, through uh, working with the private companies, right? Uh, 2015, uh, we started losing every race because it was a really high uh, level. Even though uh, Gerardo Joa was really, really strong, but it took us uh, um, uh, two years to start winning, uh, and then, uh, like in, in 2019, I think it was 2019 or 20, Alex, when we won the first World Cup in, in mountain bike with Gerardo Joa, uh, and th that is because uh, we we realized that we are doing something uh, important, that we select uh, the best uh, young riders in Mexico. And then we take care of them, like uh, we give them the the again the psychologist, the nutritionist, the 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 coach, uh, everything, right? The physiotherapist. Uh, so we were taking care of them. Heard a lot of podcasts after uh, Isaac, and there's a common denominator that I've heard that people say that cycling is not a huge sport in Mexico, right? Because we have soccer and whatnot. Since COVID, cycling in Mexico is becoming huge. If you go ride on a Saturday in Mexico City, you wouldn't believe the amount of cyclists you're going to find in the streets. It's it's crazy how it blew up. And we are not Colombia. We know that we are not, maybe Ecuador has had more riders or whatever. But cycling in Mexico is growing at, at an amazing rate. For sponsors, this is something uh, they should be looking at. It's I, th I, th I believe that... Uh, the world should be looking at us. After Isaac won Tour de l'Avenir, you have no idea how many people started talking about cycling. Because that's another thing. Now we have a national hero, right? This is amazing for the sport for us because people that don't know about cycling now want to know about cycling. Tour Down Under, you couldn't go to a, to a bike coffee shop in Mexico where they weren't watching Tour Down Under. And we, we decided to... to uh... Uh, yeah, to communicate through the social media that uh, we were gonna open uh, uh, tryouts uh, for uh, new riders. Uh, th this is when we won the World Cup in mountain bike, and then we met this a group of companies, and we decided to to launch the road road team, and we decided to to, to uh, yeah communicate all Mexico that we were have tryouts. We opened the tryouts and we closed them. We finished them. And then after that, Isaac uh, uh, wrote us and called us, and he said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know about this." He he like he was like saying, "Please, please let me do the tryouts." 
and I and, and I said, okay, let's do it because he's like he really wants it. You can see when someone wants it, and and then he said, but I don't have the the money for my uh, plane ticket because he lives in the very north of Mexico, right, California. So that's very very far. And I said, ah, well, let's see. And uh, so we, I, I got some funding from a sponsor, and uh, and I we bought in the the, the plane ticket. Then once he was, uh, uh, he he did the tryouts, uh, all the VO2 uh, uh, tests, and then uh, all the lactate and everything. Uh, my brother saw this on him, and he's like, yeah, he's natural. <laughs> and then after that, uh, uh, through the years. Uh, like like immediately the first the second year he had a very bad uh, uh, attitude like he was uh, he was very very anxious all the time and and trying to improve a lot of things but he was not doing it properly so so he was also teasing his uh, friends uh, like all his uh, fr- writers uh, friends and uh, no one wanted him the team uh, they were like no no he's a bully he's a bully and uh, and um, and even the coach, the he said, you know what? I don't want him the team. He's too much. Uh, he's he's like out of his mind all the time. And and then I, and then I talked to him, and and I understood that he was very similar to me <laughs> when I when I was in football. And I said, ah, it's, it's not about him. We need a professional uh, psychology. Uh, and uh, and this is what we started uh, putting attention to the psychologist. And uh, and he under I talked to him. Alex talked to him. And we made him realize that uh, he needed to work as a team, not as an individual. It's kind of the next Colombia, no? Mexico is not that different from Colombia in a topographic uh, manner. And uh, though we have it, so, such a bad governments and these kind of things that we have to drag with it, I think it's come the time that people like, like the Rodriguez brothers were able to do a lot with with very little, all that they do, they do it the, the right way, the technical way, but with, with very, very little resources, and they do magic, no? But now that there would be more funding coming and there would be a lot of, of doors open, then we can take advantage because the time is right. I think what happened with Isaac, it happened maybe before we were expecting it to happen, but we knew it was gonna happen. I do believe there's there are new new riders that we're gonna be they're gonna be seen in the world tour very soon. But it was really like going into a dream. Now it's not a dream; it's something that that has been coming true. Uh, the plans uh, for the future is to keep developing uh, uh, Mexican riders. Uh, uh, since uh, you know we have all the chain, right? We have the the competitions in Mexico. We have the junior uh, uh, categories, developing categories, and in Europe we have the under 23 uh, categories. And the main goal is that in 2026 we want to jump to a, a pro tour category uh, with the men's team and hopefully also uh, with the women's team. And the, the, of course, this is the idea. Hopefully, we, we can make it work. For 2029, we we want to achieve uh, to to jump to the world tour. 
Well, chaps, that was just uh, a few highlights, a sort of summary of the Isaac del Toro story. Um, I was speaking to Luis and um, Andy and Ramon and also Luis's brother, um, Alex Rodriguez, for a couple of hours yesterday. And there were so many fascinating aspects to that story, how he got into the tour uh, de l'Avenir last year. They're a very resourceful bunch and they've had to jump through lots of different hoops, sort of registering the team in San Marino, I'm going to live in the Czech Republic, Czechia, Rob. Um, and they are very ambitious, very passionate, very energetic, as you heard. And they're very proud of their prodigy, Isaac del Toro. Um, Alex uh, Rodriguez, who we didn't hear from there, I mean, he talked about um, Isaac del Toro's qualities as a rider. And it was interesting to hear him just talk about well not being surprised by the manner the, the kind of extraordinary very surprising for us manner in which Isaac del Toro took his stage win at the Tour de Under. this is a, a young rider who's been touted talked about as a climber won the Tour de l'Avenir and won with this very explosive sort of finisher's attack um, I think it was stage two of the Tour de Under. and Alex Rodriguez um, said that he wouldn't have been surprised to see Isaac del Toro win almost a bunch sprint in the Tour down under he's that fast um we've seen well we've seen how versatile Tade Pogacar has been over the last um few years and comparisons have already been made we don't want to get ahead of ourselves at this point but it's going to be fascinating over the next few months just to just to see in what direction Isaac Del Toro develops well you heard a lot about the the spirit work ethic graft belief and and humility all put together there but there's no substitute for talent is there and when i was watching that that down under stage it, you almost do want to stop yourself saying it because you know the pressure it's going to put on but it looks like pogacha it looked like pogacha attacking you know style's got something to do with it. it's obviously wearing the same jersey there's things like that but it was highly impressive and it it's hard not to to wish them all the best and hope that Mexican road racing can become a big thing because the enthusiasm that just oozed out of all that stuff they were telling you, Daniel, was brilliant. Indeed, Rob. And, um, well, that just about concludes today's um, episode. Um, we've got the Cyclocross Worlds at the weekend. Renat, you can tell. I'm very excited. <laughs> um, I will be watching. I, I'm going to try. I'm going to... I'm going to give it a go. Um, I don't think Arsenal are playing on Sunday. I was going to so say it doesn't clash for the Arsenal, does it? I don't, I don't it? think Arsenal are playing on Sunday, so I'm going to try and watch the um, Cyclocross World Championships for at least for as long as it's at least for as long as there's some suspense in the men's race. This is one of the problems with Cyclocross: the suspense, particularly when Matthew van der Poel is riding, often ends in the first few minutes in the opening salvos, the opening blows. Um, hopefully that won't be the case but of course um, misfortune we don't wish this upon him but misfortune can strike at any point of course um, yeah. every race has to be ridden yeah those pesky poles yeah yeah, um, exactly not, not the exactly. riders from Poland as we've established yeah. but the immovable <laughs> objects yeah yeah. Um, there's a couple of trees there in Tabor they don't have poles standing beside the course but there's a lot of trees might be tricky those trees look hey, out for them listen we are laughing but in that Benidorm race when Van der Poel was coming back from his first problem up the hill there it looked like he was just going to ride past everybody and ride away to victory he was that good so yeah anything can happen you never know and like uh, Renat was saying, the Ventura Nats of this world, the, the nurses and people like that will be ready and waiting. And in the women's race as well, you know, you've got probably the entire front row is going to be Dutch, isn't it? But even Catablanca Wash as well. She was up there in Augereira. So you yeah. just never know. Anything can happen. Indeed. 
Um, it has been a delight, chaps. It's been a pleasure. Um, we will be welcoming you both back, I'm sure, in the coming months um, or coming weeks. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy your various assignments. Um, Rob, you're off virtually to Valencia. Yes. Uh, Comunidad starts. Valenciana. And Renat, you're off to the Algarve. So. Sí. Por favor. No, that's Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great stuff. Thanks, chaps. Ciao. Adios. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.